Good morning. For those who say I never finish a book in the Bible, mark this date. Because this is our last message in 2 Corinthians. It's also the final message in a series that challenged us with the question, am I for real? And we have approached the answer as Scripture does from two angles. One is the subjective angle, the witness within. Romans chapter 8 tells us the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There is that internal witness. And we suggested that there are three aspects to the subjective witness of the Spirit. He gives me a new direction. He starts leading me out of my old life into my new life in Christ. He gives me a new relationship. God, who I used to fear, I now call Father, but not simply Father. I call Him Abba, Father. The Aramaic word for Dada. The affection of a child for his father. New relationship. And then thirdly, he gives me a new ambition. And that is eternal glory. So that I am so focused on what God is going to give me in the future that I am willing to suffer today, if need be, to experience glory with him. Those are things that every Christian experiences within. Subjective. And then there is the objective angle, the witness without. John tells us in 1 John 3.10, the child of God is obvious. Obvious. This is something that I don't just see myself, but other people see. And we suggested there are three elements of the obvious witness of a believer. The first is a repentant spirit. A turning from sin to Christ. And if I have seriously turned from sin to Christ, then that repentant spirit should be evident in my attitude towards sin today. That which I once loved, I now hate. That which I once reveled in and even flaunted, I'm now ashamed of. I used to love the darkness. Now I want to come to the light. That doesn't mean I don't sin. But it means that when I sin, I want to deal with it. I want to confess it. I want to be cleansed of it. I want to turn away from it. That's a repentant spirit. Second obvious thing is a surrendered will. At salvation, a death takes place. And it's me. Romans 6.6 6 says, our old self was crucified with him. We died with Christ. That's why Paul could say of himself in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. That's why Paul could say of us in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. The old me has died. And the practical reality of that death is a surrendered will. Now, I may not understand all of that at the point of salvation, but I do bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I surrender all in coming to him. I let go of everything else to take hold of him. My will is surrendered in order to experience his will. And then the third thing that is obvious is a fruitful life. One of the things that comes out loud and clear in Scripture is the genuine saving faith given the opportunity will produce fruit. In the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, the thing that distinguished the good soil from the other soil was that it yielded a crop. It bore fruit. Jesus says some 100, some 60, some 30. There were differences in productivity, but every one of them produced fruit. In the parable of the tares in that same chapter, Jesus said this in verse 26, the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. How could you tell the wheat from the tares? The wheat had fruit, the wheat had grain, and the tares became evident evident. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns against false prophets. He says, inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Outwardly they are wearing sheep's clothing. How do you tell the false teacher? How do you recognize the false prophet? Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. It's that simple. The bottom line is fruit. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus broadens that application using that same principle. In Luke chapter 6, in verse 43, He says, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. There's the principle, no exceptions. What's the application? Listen to verse 45. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth What is evil? Good heart brings forth good. Evil heart brings forth evil. That's consistent. When Jesus talked about the soil, he said it was referring to what? Men's hearts. And here he says it comes from the heart. Don't be mistaken. You can't produce these these works yourself. You can't produce this fruit yourself. It has to come from your heart. And so genuine fruit comes from a genuine heart. You say, well, Dan, I have a genuine heart, but I'm not producing any fruit. Well, then you need to talk to Jesus. Because Jesus says it's obvious when you have a genuine heart. Because there's going to be genuine fruit. I mean, I don't see how it couldn't be obvious. We say at the point of salvation that God comes and takes up residence in your life. 
Now, if God comes and takes up residence in your life, something's got to change. Something's got to happen. God's life is fruitful. And if his life is inside of you, there will be fruit. That's what Jesus is saying. Genuine faith, given the opportunity, will produce fruit. You say, well, Dan, I got you. What about the thief on the cross? Okay. That's why I said, given the opportunity. You see, he didn't have an opportunity. See, you're not saved by fruit. I, I, didn't, I don't find any verse in the Bible that says you're saved by fruit. You are saved by grace. But grace in your life is going to manifest itself in fruit. Thief on the cross had genuine saving faith. He didn't have the opportunity to produce fruit in his life or see that fruit produced in his life through his faith. But guess what? He had the other two things, didn't he? He had a repentant spirit. Because the Bible says when they were first on the cross that both of the thieves were casting insults at Jesus. And then later, this guy says this. He says, we are receiving what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. A repentant spirit. And then he also shows a surrendered will because he bows to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He turns to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now that's pretty amazing faith because did Jesus look like a king? Not at all. The only thing that said king was a sign over his head. He didn't look like a king. But see, faith doesn't wait until he looks like a king to bow down to him. That's what everyone's going to do in the future. Every knee will bow. Genuine faith bows to him when he doesn't look like a king, when he's being rejected by the world and says, you are Lord. That was the thief on the cross. You say, well, what about the person who claims to have a genuine salvation experience and there's no evidence? What about the person who says, I'm saved, and they go on in their lifestyle as if nothing happened? Well, ultimately, only God knows. But if a person has truly been saved, then he is a child of God. And Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6 says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. God will not allow a person who is truly his child to go on in disobedience. He will discipline that person. And where there is no fruit and no discipline, then I think you have to come to the conclusion there is no relationship. You see, that person probably falls into the category that Jesus talked about when he talked about the sower in Matthew 13. And he talked about the rocky soil. 
And he said the seed falls on the rocky soil and it springs up and it has no root and the sun comes out and it withers. And it represents those who receive the word and then when persecution arises, they fall away. Is that saving faith? No. That's not one of the good soils. Look at Titus chapter 1 with me for a minute. Titus chapter 1, the last two verses of chapter 1 of Titus. Verse 15. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and, notice, unbelieving... Nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Now, he establishes at the end of verse 15 who he's talking about. He's talking about an unbeliever. Now, notice what he says in verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. How do you recognize a true believer? It's not by what he says. It's by what he does. And the Word of God here is telling us that this guy denies God so loudly with his deeds that it drowns out his words of professing to know God. You see, genuine saving faith, given the opportunity, will produce fruit. Now, let me show you a passage, and we'll close with this. James chapter 2. A lot of people are afraid of this passage. A lot of preachers don't preach on this passage, don't understand this passage. I pray today that we can understand it a little better by going through it together. James chapter 2 beginning at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, I want you to notice something very important. James doesn't say that this guy has faith. He tells us this person says he has faith, but he has no works. He claims to have faith, but his life has not changed. His life is contradicting his profession. And James asks two questions. And in the Greek, you can write a question in such a way that you expect a negative answer. And that's the way these questions are asked. Number one, what use is it? What good is it? What profit is it? What value is it? And the answer is none. And then the second question is, can that faith save him? Now, if your Bible says, can faith save him, that's a bad translation. Because the article is in here. And what he's saying is, can that faith save him? Is a faith that only talks, but doesn't walk, genuine saving faith? That's the question. 
Is a faith that a person says he has but causes no change in his life really saving faith? And the answer is no. And then to show how absurd this is, he gives an illustration in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Brother or sister has the two most essential physical needs. They need clothing and they need food. And someone comes along and gives them words. And James says, what use is that? Now, these are wonderful words. These are words of love. But where you have words of love without the action of love, you don't have love at all. You see, love doesn't talk in a situation like this. Love acts. Love responds When I see someone with this kind of physical problem and I give them words, it's an insult to them. If I stand here today and say, yeah, there are a lot of international students at SEMO, and I would love to have them over. I hope they get a wonderful meal somewhere else. That's a lot of nice words. These are nice words. This guy comes up and sees somebody in need, and he says, I am deeply moved by your problem. I cannot express to you how concerned I am. Be warmly clothed and have a great meal. Is that love? No. That's hypocrisy. See, love gives him my coat. Love feeds him. And what's his point? Verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. When you have the words of love without the actions of love, you don't have love at all. And even so, when you have the words of faith without the actions of faith, guess what? You don't have faith at all. Faith without works is dead. It is non-existent. It is not saving faith. As the reformers like to say, we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Genuine saving faith, given the opportunity, will produce fruit. And then notice verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by the works. Somebody comes up to this guy who's saying he has faith, but he has no fruit in his life, no works in his life. Someone comes up to this guy. We used to call this kind of person a Clairol Christian. Now, if you're as old as me, you remember the Clairol commercials. And uh, I don't remember what Clairol was, but... I guess it was a hair coloring thing, and and the commercial was, only your hairdresser knows for sure. 
a Clairol Christian is somebody who only God knows for sure. Because when you say, show me, there's nothing to see there. How do I convince someone else that my faith is genuine? Well, the only way that I can show it is by the works, by the fruit that true faith produces in my life. Now, as a kid, we used to sing that song. I think we still sing it. It's called, uh, If You're Saved and You Know It. Come on, sing it with me. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands, you know. Anybody can clap their hands. If you're saved and you know it, stomp your feet. Okay. But I love this part. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. That's truth. You can clap your hands all you want to. Stomp your feet all you want to. But the reality is, if you're saved and you really know it, then your life should show it so that other people know that you're saved. And that's James' point. If you're going to say, I'm, whoop, 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 calm down. I'm prone to accidents. That could have been a big one. What was I going to say? I have no idea. <laughs> All right, look, at, look back at James. James is going to get a little sarcastic, which is why I like this guy. James has been called a New Testament man from Missouri because he's always, show me, show me, show me. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? James says you believe, congratulations. You're right up there with the demons because they believe too. You see, not all faith is redemptive faith. There is a kind of faith that people claim to have that is not saving faith. And to illustrate that, James says the demons believe. Now, the demons, as he mentions them here, represent two kinds of faith. The first is intellectual assent. In, in, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 24, a demon-possessed man says to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Great words. Where do they come from? A demon. He believes all about Jesus. You see, saving faith is more than believing about God. You can believe a lot about God. You can believe a lot of truth about Jesus. You can believe a lot of truth in the Bible and not be saved. Because saving faith is more than intellectual assent. We believe a lot of things, and they are historical beliefs. You learn about history, and you say, okay, I believe that. What is that? Historical faith. I remember one time uh, years ago, uh, our first youth pastor uh, was from Marble Hill, a guy named Jesse, and I went over with Jesse to Marble Hill, and we were going over there, and he said, while I'm over here, I'm going to visit my grandma, and he kind of had to screen me ahead of time on his grandma. He said, now be careful what you say about my grandma because uh, 
She doesn't believe a lot of things. She, 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 in fact, she doesn't believe that we put people on the moon. So don't mention that. And she, she, they showed her the newspaper article and she said, I don't believe that. Do you believe that? That we actually stuck some people in a little capsule and shot them 211,463 miles away and they landed softly on the moon? You believe that? She didn't believe it. Can't blame her. It's pretty strange. Most of us in this room believe that. But if it came out tomorrow that it was all a hoax, that it never really happened, that it was done in a studio in Hollywood, how much would that affect your life? Not much. You probably wouldn't trust the government as much as you did before, but you don't trust them much anyway. <laughs> you see, that's historical belief. But that's not saving faith. And then he points out a second characteristic of, of the way the demons believe, and that is they have an emotional response. Because he says they not only believe, but they tremble. They have an emotional response to the truth. In Matthew 8, 29, we hear the demons crying out, have you come to torment us before the time? They are scared of hell. They believe Jesus is who he claims to be, and they have an emotional response to it. They are afraid of hell. A lot of people have an emotional response to the gospel, and they call it faith. It's not necessarily saving faith. In Matthew chapter 13, in the parable of the sower, Jesus talked about that seed that fell on the rocky ground. And he said, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Gets excited emotionally about it. But is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises, he falls away. Saving faith is more than historical belief. And it's more than an emotional response. What is saving faith? We know the word faith and believe in our English Bible are actually the same Greek word, pistuo. Faith is the noun, believe is the verb. John uses the verb form of faith, pistuo, or believe 99 times. In fact, what's interesting in his gospel, he never uses a noun form because it's always active. And to give you an idea of what the word means, listen to how it's used in John 2, 24. But Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. That word entrusting, pistuo, to believe. What does it mean to believe? It's to be persuaded of, to have confidence in, and to entrust yourself to. John Patton 
was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. He was trying to translate the scripture into their language, and he was struggling to find a word for faith. And as he was sitting in his little hut trying to figure out, what word can I use to communicate the idea of faith? One of the natives came in and plopped down in a chair in his hut, and he said, it feels so good to rest totally upon this chair. And John Patton had his word for faith. It means to rest totally upon Jesus Christ. It's based on knowledge. It may stir you emotionally, but it means to totally entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. Imagine there's a fire and you come out to a fourth-story window and there's smoke everywhere and you can't see anything and you hear a voice down below. Uh, It's Big Pete. And he says, jump. And I say to him, I can't see you. And he says, that's all right, I can see you. Just jump. Now, it's a part of faith for me to believe that Pete is down there. That's part of faith. I picked him because it's part of faith to believe that he can catch me. And Pete can catch me. But I can stand in the window and say, I believe Pete's down there. And I believe Pete's very strong and he can catch me. But the essence of faith is to jump. And a lot of people stand around and they say, yeah, God's out there. I believe God's out there. I believe God can save me. I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe all the facts of the gospel. But they never jump. They never entrust their lives to Jesus Christ. And James says, when you jump, when you entrust your life to Jesus Christ, guess what? He produces in your life fruit, works. And then to illustrate that further, he gives two illustrations from the Old Testament. And we're not going to have time to go through them in detail, but look at verse 21. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac. You say, is he saying he was saved by works? No. Look at the next verse. Verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. You see, faith was already there. And faith was working with his works. When he offered up Isaac, James says his faith was completed. Now, it wasn't deficient before. What it did was it came to full blossom when he offered up Isaac. And And to show you that, look at the next verse, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. What I want you to note is this. Verse 23 happens in Genesis 15. Verse 21 happens in Genesis chapter 22, 17 years later. So in Genesis 15, he believes God, and it's reckoned to him as righteousness. He is saved, in our words. 
And it's genuine saving faith because 17 years later when he's asked to offer up Isaac, he responds in obedience to God and we see the fruit of his faith. That's what he's saying. In Genesis 15, God comes to him and says, I'm going to make your seed like the stars in the sky and like the sands on the beach. And he believes God. And he gets that miracle child, Isaac, and raises him. And when Isaac is about 17 years old, God says, all right, I want you to offer him up on the mountain. And he responds in faithful obedience to God. And he says that is the evidence that his faith is real. Second example is Rahab. Look at her in verse 25. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, Rahab wasn't saved by good works. We're told what kind of works she did. She was a prostitute. But when the children of Israel came to the city of Jericho and the spies came to her, she said this. She says, The Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And when you destroy the city... I want you to promise that you'll let my family live. Now, that took a lot of faith because she was in the big city of Jericho with the big walls. They looked really protected. And who was out there? The children of Israel. How intimidating an army were they? Their parents were slaves in Egypt and they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They were well qualified to take a big city. But she says, I know that your God is going to bring this about. And when the city falls, save my family. And how do we know that her faith was real? She hid the spies on the roof and let them down over the wall. Two examples, Abraham and Rahab, a patriarch and a prostitute. Some people mistakenly look at this passage of Scripture and say, see, you're saved by good works. Well, if you look closely at these two examples, you don't even have to look closely. They're not good works. What did God ask Abraham to do? Kill your son. Last time I looked, that's murder. So if you extract the faith out of Abraham's situation, he is murdering his son. What's Rahab asked to do? Treason against her country. In fact, she lies about the spies being on the roof. There's no good works in this. Extract the faith and you have murder and treason. These are not good works. The only thing that made them good is the faith that motivated them and caused them to obey what God told them to do. See, James is not saying here that you're saved by works. Please don't misread that. And James is not saying that you are saved by faith plus works. What James is saying is that when you have genuine saving faith, it will produce works in your life. And then he closes with an analogy in verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, and that word spirit can be translated breath, and I prefer that 
translation. For just as the body without breath is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now when you find somebody and you assume maybe they're dead, how do you check to see if they're dead? You you check to see if they're breathing. Has he got breath? He's not breathing. He's dead. Now, if you know CPR and you find somebody who's not breathing, you start the CPR. That's that's CPR. (laughs) I'm well trained. Do CPR on somebody who's not breathing, somebody who's dead, and suddenly they start to breathe, what do you say? He's alive. She's alive. James is saying in the same way, somebody comes along and says, I have saving faith. You know what people often respond to that? They say, I've heard that before. I've heard a lot of people tell me they believe in Jesus. There's been no change in their life. And they watch this person. They start seeing the fruit that only God can produce. And what do they say? He's alive. She's alive. That's what James is saying here. A body without breath is dead. A profession of faith without fruit is dead. Are you for real? Are you for real? If so, then it ought to be evident to those around you by your repentant spirit, by your surrendered will, and by your fruitful life. People ought to be looking at the fruit in your life and saying, man, he's alive. She's alive. I'm going to have Jeff and the praise team come back and close our service. And as we do, I would just ask you to talk to Jesus about where you're at in terms of your profession and the reality of that in your life. Let's be challenged this morning with that question. Am I for real? Let's stand as we close our service.